Medical rewrites, medical rewrites, medical. Hello and welcome to Medical Rewrites, the podcast that rewrites movie scenes with evidence-based medicine. I'm your host, Megan Jeffries. Our medical rewrite today is going to be about Wolf of Wall Street. The deep dives will be about cocaine and methaqualone, also known as quaaludes. If either of these topics are distressing, this might be an episode to skip. Wolf of Wall Street details. It was released in 2013. The budget for the movie was $100 million, so kind of a big old budget. Box office was $406 million, so pretty successful. IMDb rates it an 8.2 out of 10. Very generous. And the Rotten Tomatoes, the critics are at 80%. Audiences at 83%. So well-loved, well-adored movie. It got a couple of awards. Five Academy Awards for Best Picture, Director, Adopted Screenplay, Actor, and Supporting Actor, and one Golden Globe for Leonardo DiCaprio, and one nom for Best Picture. It's currently available for streaming on Amazon Prime for those of you that haven't seen it or want to go watch it again with the new view of what uh, should be rewritten in this movie. So Wolf of Wall Street is the real-ish, real-life-ish story of Jordan Belfort, uh, who's played by Leonardo DiCaprio. I say ish because the movie is based on Jordan's recall of his own life while he was consuming copious amounts of medications that cause retrograde amnesia. So the recall bias here, I think, is very strong. Nonetheless, it starts in 1987 when Jordan takes an entry-level job at the Wall Street at a Wall Street brokerage firm. After the stock market crash, he finds work at a penny stock company, and that's where he learns about all of this sort of like shady money that can be made in this very legal gray zone of stock trading. So he learns all these tricks, and then by the early 1990s, he starts his own firm with his best friend, Donnie Azoff, and that's played by Jonah Hill. And that's a fictional character because the real-life best friend successfully got his name out of the movie shenanigans. Jordan, who's a real-life person, him and his crew, in their own company, they make hundreds of millions of dollars by defrauding wealthy investors until the SEC and FBI charge him with fraud and money laundering. Early on in the movie, pretty early in, we see Jordan's first day working at this Wall Street brokerage. Again, this is when he's like wide-eyed and sort of enamored with this whole idea of being a stockbroker. Mark Hanna, who's played by Matthew McConaughey, is the senior partner like his boss's boss. He hears that Jordan in his interview pitched a stock and loves the sort of tenacity and the chutzpah and the audaciousness of Jordan. So Mark Hanna invites him out to lunch, and then here's the sort of like the mentorship starts. This hugely famous scene of the two of them sitting in the restaurant, and he's and Mark Hanna or Matthew McConaughey starts the chest thumping action, and then starts into his speech. There's two keys to success in the broker business. First of all, you gotta stay relaxed. You jerk off? Do I, do I jerk off? Yeah. Yeah, I jerk off, yeah. How many times a week? Like um, three, three, four, three, four times, maybe. I'll pump those numbers up. Those are rookie numbers in this racket. I, myself, I jerk off at least twice a day. Wow. Once in the morning, right after I work out, and then once right after lunch. Really? 
Mm-hmm. Okay? I want to. That's not why I do it. Mm-hmm. I do it because I fucking need to. Think about it. You're dealing with numbers all day long. Mm-hmm. Decimal points, high frequencies, bang, bang, bang. <laughs> Fucking digits. <laughs> all very acidic, above the shoulders, mustard shit. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. It kind of can wake some people out. Mm-hmm. Right? You got to feed the geese to keep the blood flowing. Mm-hmm. I keep the rhythm below the belt. Done. This is not a tip. This is a prescription. Trust me. Mm-hmm. If you don't, you will fall out of balance, split your differential, and tip the fuck over. Or worse yet, I've seen this happen. Implode. No, I don't want to implode, sir. No. no, no, you don't. I'm in it for the long run, you know. Yeah, implosions are ugly. Yeah. Pop off to the bathroom, work one out anytime you can, and when you get really good at it, you'll fucking be stroking it, and you'll be thinking about money. Second key to success in this racket is this little baby right here. It's called cocaine. Right. It will keep you sharp between the ears. It'll also help your fingers dial faster. And guess what? That's good for me. Yes, sir. Revolutions. You follow? Revolutions. Keep the clients on the Ferris wheel. And it goes. The park is open 24-7-365. Every decade, every goddamn century. That's it. Name of the game. How kitty Mmm. Thank you. When I think about cocaine, however, this actual scene is one of the origin stories for why this podcast exists. This scene drives me nuts in terms of the content. And I know it was ad-libbed by McConaughey in the moment, which is why it's like a little bizarre. But nonetheless, like the whole thing makes me absolutely nuts. Because when I think about cocaine, I have a very clear memory of one of my pharmacology professors, shout out Don Corcus, saying, cocaine causes vasoconstriction and platelet aggregation, the perfect recipe for a myocardial infarction or stroke. That's my, like, origin knowledge of cocaine. Vasoconstriction and platelet aggregation, hence MIs and strokes. He also claimed that he would never do cocaine because he had a big nose and he would get too big of a dose. Obviously, it doesn't work like that. But nonetheless, it was an effective learning technique. So shout out, Don Corcus. Then, while I lived in Vegas, I learned a little bit more nuance about cocaine. I learned about the big debate about avoiding beta blockers in the setting of cocaine-induced angina, or myocardial infarctions. So the idea of using cocaine throughout the day to, quote, keep you sharp between the ears, also successfully masturbate multiple times a day, my immediate thought is like, that is just not possible. The vasoconstriction, right, of cocaine will clearly inhibit the vasorelaxation required to produce an erection. So this is my, like, origin thought process of why this scene drives me crazy. So we're going to do a deep dive to see if my thoughts here are actually correct or if I'm taking pharmacology to a place that is an over-assumption. Let's dive into cocaine pharmacology. Most popularly, we think about cocaine's effect on the CNS, right? So within the CNS, it blocks the reuptake of dopamine, norepi, and serotonin. And it's in that order in terms of what it has preference for. So we get a bunch of dopamine, a meat amount of norepi, and a little bit of serotonin in the CNS because of cocaine. So dopamine is usually recycled in the brain, but cocaine blocks the transportation of dopamine back into the neuron. So the synapse is just full of dopamine, which it binds to then postsynaptic dopamine receptors. And then you feel amazing. All your like postsynaptic dopamine receptors are full, fat, and happy. So I've heard, right. 
In the periphery, cocaine also blocks sodium-potassium channels, which is why it's used as a local anesthetic, but needs higher doses than the weekend bender, really, uh, to be achieved in order to, like, block all of those sodium-potassium channels and therefore block interpretation of pain. At really big doses, it can cause arrhythmias, like class 1 arrhythmia uh, medications. Think sodium channel blockade, like lidocaine-like properties. So the dose response curve for cocaine is pretty interesting. The most important cardiovascular effects of cocaine is what it does to the endothelium. So again, we're in the periphery, so we're not in the brain anymore. In blood vessels, cocaine causes the release of endothelium 1 from endothelial cells, which line all of our blood vessels. The endothelial cells are responsible for vasoconstriction and vasodilation. They're the ones that are taking care of all the, like, blood pressure is high, let's relax, or blood pressure is low, let's constrict. Endothelium 1, the constrictor, and nitric oxide, the dilator, are in constant dance to sort of maintain vascular tone and blood pressure. Those are our main players, endothelium and nitric oxide. Cocaine's been shown to inhibit production of nitric oxide, so we're resulting with this sort of unopposed vasoconstriction from endothelium 1. Nitric oxide's believed to be the main mediator of erections. So within the corpus cavernosa of the penis, nitric oxide increases cyclic GMP levels. Cyclic GMP regulates calcium channels, which allows for relaxation of the corpus cavernosum smooth muscle. This has all been demonstrated in rat models over and over again. In rat models, it's been demonstrated that cocaine reduces nitric oxide production by around 20%, which is less than I thought it would be. But I also didn't think that cocaine would actually have an effect on nitric oxide as much as it would just have a direct vasoconstriction effect. There we have it. So we've got this like unopposed endothelium 1, et cetera. And this is, but again, this is all in rat models. References in show notes. The data linking cocaine and erectile dysfunction in people, not nearly as amazing. There's a study from 2007 where they conducted interviews with people in substance use treatment centers, and this was in Washington, D.C. Researchers were exploring the association between use of cocaine and sexual behavior as an important risk factor for HIV infection. So that's why this study took place. The sample they included in the study were people that had been using heroin that had used heroin and cocaine on a weekly basis. They didn't have to use heroin and cocaine at the same time, but they needed to have regular use of both substances at some point in their life up until prior to entering the treatment center. One variable they assessed is sexual desire. Again, they wanted to look at risk factors for transmission of HIV during drug use, specifically heroin and cocaine. They found that 41 participants reported decreased sexual desire while using cocaine, compared to only 22% when using heroin. So twice as many people that were on cocaine had less sexual desire or a decreased sexual desire when using cocaine versus heroin. Researchers also asked about sexual performance, which is the thing we care about here in this particular question, which is could you have sex while using these drugs? So the question was, Sexual performance defined as the ability to achieve or maintain an erection slash orgasm, which is like a compound question, but nonetheless, 48% of participants reported decreased sexual ability while using cocaine compared to, again, only 22% while using heroin. In theory, at least half the people in this treatment center that were using cocaine reported that they couldn't either, one, achieve or two, maintain an erection and or orgasm, which is like 
a ton of different physiologic approaches there, but it could be the fact that they couldn't achieve an erection because endothelium one is just constricting the bananas out of the corpus cavernosum. Then there was a study done 10 years later that assessed erectile dysfunction symptoms prevalence in men in outpatient treatments for substance abuse, and this was done in Brazil. 33% of participants reported erectile dysfunction symptoms, 29 of which were cocaine users. The human data on this particular question is abysmal. Back to the premise of not having enough nitric oxide in the corpus cavernosum to at least trigger cyclic GMP to minimize the calcium flow and allow for smooth muscle relaxation in the corpus cavernosum. So that's the premise we're working on here. So if that is the reason that cocaine causes erectile dysfunction, then we need to look at cyclic GMP. Enter phosphodiesterase inhibitors. The role of phosphodiesterase is to inactivate cyclic GMP to just GMP. Therefore, if we inhibit the breakdown of cyclic GMP, calcium flow continues to be low and smooth muscles can relax. Calcium causes constriction. If we slow that flow down, we get smooth muscle relaxation. And therefore, when combating cocaine-induced erectile dysfunction, the best route would be to use a phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitor that can cause the most relaxation to the corpus cavernosum. That's going to be our trick to multiple masturbations per day while on cocaine to keep your Wall Street boss happy. A study in 2009 did just that. They looked at which phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitor released the most nitric oxide that would allow the most nitric oxide in to the corpus cavernosum and therefore the most smooth muscle relaxation, therefore allowing blood to flow in their erection. Ta-da. Researchers used human corpus cavernosum tissue from 16 individuals ranged from 14 to 65 years old. They had undergone penile prosthesis implantation or they had multiple organ donation. So we don't know how many people donated organs to science or if they were from people that were already having erectile dysfunction problems and also donated tissue. So it's a little bit of a confounding variable that's not accounted for. But they took that tissue, human tissue, they bathed the tissue with increasing doses of sildenafil, vardenafil, and tadalafil. They used epinephrine, which is a pure alpha-1 agonist, to measure contraction versus relaxation. So that was their like control model. They wanted to see how much in the setting of phenylephrine, which is a pure alpha agonist, causing vasoconstriction, and then relaxation that would get with phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitors. Results showed sildenafil, verdenafil, and tadalafil all relaxed the corpus cavernosum tissue in a concentration-dependent manner. So they had a really nice dose-response curve. Verdenafil was the most potent, closely followed by sildenafil, and they both beat tadalafil by quite a margin. So tadalafil was able to produce the least amount of corpus cavernosum relaxation. Based on this, here's my rewrite for Mark Hanna's pep talk. We'll pick up at the cocaine part towards the end of his monologue. Hannah, second key to success in this racket is this little baby right here. It's called cocaine. Belfort, right. Hannah, it will keep you sharp between the ears. It'll also help your fingers dial faster, but it'll make your dick soft. So you need to supplement your life with these little babies right here. It's called Levitra. It'll keep you hard between the legs. And guess what? That's good for me. Yes, sir. Revolutions. You follow? <laughs> and well, well, I get this is ridiculous, but A, come on. This is a perfect rewrite. A, they get like product placement in this movie. 
Levitra's company will certainly pay to have that being part of its like product placement line here by the most famous monologue in this movie that's going to be a huge hit because the cast is crazy. That monologue has been an itch in my brain for years. And the fact that I can now release it is unbelievable. Unbelievable euphoria happening right now for me. Sort of like cocaine euphoria, so I've heard. All right, number two. Honestly, that's the big rewrite. The big rewrite is the cocaine fixing that monologue. That's the bothersome. The movie is like all about drugs, like let's face it. But the other topic in here that deserves at least a little bit of love is methaqualone. So at 50 minutes in, there's this big party montage. There's cocaine, alcohol, and methaqualone. The brand name for methaqualone is Quaaludes. There either was not another generic maker or by then in the public, it had just become known as Quaaludes. And so no one actually talked about its generic name. Also just called Ludes during the scene. So Jordan's playing beer pong and it appears, he appears alert and oriented. In the background, however, Donnie is like slouched on the couch and he's slurring. No words are being formed. Jordan narrates this scene in the movie about what quaaludes are. And I'm going to paraphrase here, but he says, The quaalude, or lewd, was first synthesized in 1951 as a sedative and was prescribed for sleep disorders. Pretty soon, someone figured out that if you resisted the urge to sleep for 15 minutes, you got high from it. Didn't take long for people to start abusing lewds, of course, and in 1982, the U.S. government scheduled one dumb along with the rest of the world. Nothing really inaccurate about Jordan's speech, worthy of a rewrite here, since methaqualone isn't produced anymore, at least legally. Certainly, there is reports that it is produced illegally, especially in areas of Africa. But I will add some pharmacology here. Methaqualone is a GABA type A receptor agonist, same receptors as alcohol and benzodiazepines. Again, when we were talking about retrograde amnesia, that's happening here. So your recall of events while you were taking quaaludes is going to have huge gaps in it that you are not even aware of as gaps. Methaqualone was marketed as a safer option than barbiturates. So at the time, the use of barbiturates, which were initially marketed as anti-anxiety meds, it was discovered that, oh my gosh, these are addictive. Bad things happen when people are addicted to meds. So then enter methaqualone to like, we're not addictive. We're different than barbiturates. The main difference between barbiturates and methaqualone is that barbiturates bind to GABA type B instead of A. So you're not going to get a wildly different pharmacologic effect here. There's also probably a ton of spillover into other receptors in the CNS, especially at high doses, that we just don't know about. We're probably never going to know about it because no one's going to pay for research on studying the dose response curve and receptor affinity for methaqualone because there's just there's no impetus to do um, at this point. The only rewrite that I'm really pitching at this point is the sequence when Donnie brings in the 20 real lemons. So lemons is the manufacturer of the OG Quaalude. And Donnie says that he got it from a client that's a retired pharmacist, which checks out because he brings it in in a manufacturer's bottle. I've paused and looked at that label many times. It looks legit. I have no idea if it's real or not, but it looks really good, quite, you know, accuracy-wise. The pills are called lemons because the pharmaceutical company that manufactured Quaaludes was called Roar and Lemon. The pills imprint was Lemon 714. That was apparently also a very big deal to get the originals. Jordan says that lemons are three times more powerful as anything available today. So that's one of his lines in the movie. Today being 1993. We think that's the date that this is happening. 
Since methoqualone was discontinued in the U.S. in 1985, Jordan is probably referring to a lower potency that essentially like the street ludes have, which were cut with reportedly diphenhydramine and benzodiazepine. So you would still get like a sedative effect. You would get probably similar efficacy of benzos as you would get with ludes. But again, we don't know what other receptors things are spilling into and what CNS effects you might see. In the movie, the bottle of lemons is the manufacturer's bottle. It's not a prescription bottle, which is a nice touch since we think like a pharmacist has stored this and then given it to Donnie as, I don't know, like a perk, a thank you. Who knows what Donnie did for him? Not a rewrite, but just some weird behavior by Jordan. To prepare for his big night of lemons, he, he vomits. So he's like emptying out his stomach and also gives himself an enema. And he states in the movie that the purpose is to rid his body of anything that could interfere with his high. The enema is just so bizarre. That means it's like a normal practice. Like he's like, yeah, enemas all the time. No big deal. Which is sort of strange for an otherwise healthy person that uses a ton of drugs. But maybe he was constipated with all of the opiates in his life. So enemas were normal. So the enema is just bizarre to me because unless you're going to stick this lemon in the rectal route... It doesn't make any sense about why anything in your colon would disrupt absorption from methoqualone. So when I looked up just some basic PK of methoqualone, the data is really old. Nonetheless, I was able to find in Micrometics that most of the absorption happens in the stomach and duodenum. 67% is absorbed within an hour and 99% is absorbed within two hours. It's sort of normal, I guess, PO absorption curve. At one hour and 55 minutes in, Jordan and Donnie take their first lemon. They swallow it with a shot of hot sake. Jordan and Donnie then are sitting on the couch 35 minutes later after taking the lemon, and they claim to not feel any effect from the lemons. Jordan postulates that they've built up a tolerance, and they each take one more, followed by another shot of hot sake, still not feeling any of the effects that they want. Jordan wants to know if the pills have lost potency, Donnie reads on the label that it's that the pills are from January 1981 on the manufacturer's bottle. Since this is 1993, that would make the tablets around 15 years old. In, in the original gift scene, Donnie says that they were stored in a safe, which means it's going to be blocked from light. Maybe not for the entire 15 years, but it should be relatively safe from photolytic degradation in the safe. And it's also in an amber bottle. So I'm not assuming there's not going to be a ton of light damage or UV damage here. What we can't tell from the movie is if the bottle still had its original seal. So cotton plus maybe a a foil seal. I'm not sure if that was happening in 1981, quite frankly. But if it was sealed, then there would be very little oxidative degradation as well. Back to the movie, Donnie and Jordan take two more pills each. And then all of a sudden, Jordan appears to lose his ability to speak and all his motor skills. And he talks about the different phases of quaalude highs that he skips through. He narrates that the lemons took 90 minutes to kick in. But when they did, he skipped all of his prior lewd phases of tingle and slur and went straight to drool. He can't walk or talk, but he can crawl slash roll to his car. And I guess the whole idea that, A, you would remember the timeline of these lewds for drugs that cause retrograde amnesia, for me, is like not happening. I don't know if they had a secondary author to fill this in. But since Donnie is not a real character, I'm not sure who would have been that person. But it is normal that 67% happens in an hour, 
99% happens in two hours. That is a normal onset for this. So maybe the street lewds that they were taking, who knows what was happening here. But I don't think that there is a reason kinetically or metabolic-wise that there would be this delayed onset. I have no doubts that after taking four tablets of pure methoqualone versus street methoqualone that's cut with Benadryl and four hot sake shots, that he was definitely inebriated and or unable to sort of manage himself. But I just, I'm not taking the potency. I don't think the potency angle, which is the gist of the scene there. I'm not, I'm not down with the sort of uh, absorption kinetics that we're trying there. But again, not a rewrite that's itching in my brain. We've managed that one, and I feel great about it. So that's all the rewrites I have for Wolf of Wall Street. Check out the show notes for all the references for this show. If you know of a movie that deserves a medical rewrite, visit the website, complete the form. And this has been a podcast presentation by me, Megan Jeffrey. Production and editing by Ann Conley. She's the best. And music by Brandon Meager. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes available now for free wherever you get your podcasts. 